morning. My name is Pam. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 6. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a pitch-dark land, light has dawned. You have made the nation great. You have increased its joy. They rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, as those who divide plunder rejoice. As on the day of Midian, you've shattered the yoke that burdened them, the staff on their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. Because every boot of the thundering warriors and every garment rolled in blood will be burned, fuel for the fire. A child is born to us, a son is given to us, and authority will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The word of the Lord. Hi, good morning. My name is Cor. The New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 5, 8 through 14. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So live your life as children of light. Light produces fruit that consists of every sort of goodness, justice, and truth. Therefore, test everything to see what is pleasing to the Lord, and do not participate in the unfruitful actions of darkness. Instead, you should reveal the truth about them. It's embarrassing to even talk about what certain persons do in secret, but everything exposed to the light is revealed by the light. Everything that is revealed by the light is light. Therefore, it says, wake up, sleeper, get up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is David. Thank you for standing for the gospel, which is found in Luke chapter 1, verses 76 through 79. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask now that by the presence of your Holy Spirit that you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts and our minds. Lord, let your word change us today. Wake us up to the newness that you have called us into. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. In the mid-1960s, two cave explorers decided to enter some caves in order to conduct some experiments about the long-term effects of darkness on the human psyche. And so these trained cave explorers, along with a team of researchers, decided that they would set up this experiment. And the two explorers were actually in caves that were 100 yards apart from each other, but they were not in contact with each other. And the the researchers were able to kind of uh, keep tabs on them and check their vitals and make sure that they were okay. Well, one person was able to last in the cave for 88 days. Another person was in there for a hundred and the other person was in there for 126 days and they discovered several effects of darkness on human beings. But 
overall, you could say darkness is extremely disorienting, to say the least. One of the ways in which they discovered the disorientation of darkness had to do with the macro sense of time. Each of these explorers went into the, came out of the caves thinking it was much earlier than it actually was. Their sense of the date was off by weeks, in, in one case even by months. One, one of them came out uh, in February, thinking it was February, but it was actually April. They had lost track of the time. It also affected their sense of time in a micro sense. One of the explorers uh, took a what he thought was a 30-minute nap, ended up being he ended up being asleep for 30 hours. You're like, dude, that was freshman year of college, you know? <laughs> We've been fascinated by the effects of darkness. And so uh, several years later, decades later, there was a British study done where they had six volunteers, um, normal people living normal lives, not cave explorers, not people trained to deal with darkness or loneliness, but six just average citizens submit themselves to solitary dark confinement for 48 hours, just 48 hours. One of the volunteers was a comedian, and about halfway through the 48-hour timeline, he started to sing just to cheer himself up and lift his spirits, and then they said he started just crying uncontrollably because he was so disoriented by what was happening in this darkness and loneliness. In fact, for several of the people, they would bring them food and their mind began playing tricks on them. And what was perfectly normal food, they began to think was disgusting things that they were being fed and live creatures. And they began to be paranoid. So not only does darkness kind of make you lose your sense of time, it actually makes you lose your grasp of reality. That's how disorienting it is. Now, in true American style, what we decided to do was to create a reality show about darkness. And so the Discovery Channel in 2017 created a reality show called Darkness. And the three contestants who were dropped off in this cave separated from one another. And the goal was for six days either to find one another or to at the very least survive for six days. Now, I don't know what happened, but IMDb says that there were only three episodes made and then the show was canceled. <laughs> Let that be a lesson to us of what darkness does. Darkness is disorienting. Darkness in the Bible is often a picture of the effects of sin, the effects of the disorientation of our life apart from God. We are introduced to God in the Scriptures as the one who says His first words were, let there be lights. And so in the Scriptures, the darkness is a metaphor of all that is separate from God, all that it has aligned itself away from, even against God. And so sometimes in the scriptures, we understand that darkness is that kind of disorientation where we don't know whether up is down or left is right or good is evil. We're in the third week of a series called Long Nights. Long Nights is, for all of us in the northern hemisphere, it coincides with the winter and with the Christian season of Advent. Advent, the season of preparation and expectation for the coming of Jesus. But each week we've talked about how Advent is really a perfect season for the entire Christian life, this side of the kingdom arriving in fullness. Why is that? Because as Christians we journey through Advent aware of Christ's first coming as a baby in the manger and longing for his second coming in glory as the king of all. And so we live between two arrivals, if you will. 
And in a very real sense, it can feel like we are living in a long night. We know that morning is coming. We know that Jesus is king, but we're waiting in this long night. Each week in the series, we've picked a, a theme, an image from the Old Testament that helps us see who Jesus is. And these have come from some old songs called the Antiphons, the O Antiphons. Many of the lyrics, by the way, of the O Antiphons are basically the verses of that song we sang today, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And so each image is an image from Israel's longing for their Messiah that we have now used and said, yes, and this is our longing for Jesus, the Christ who has come and who will come again. And so this morning, the theme is, O Dayspring. And the short little song from the 8th century or 5th century, somewhere thereabouts, goes like this, O Dayspring, splendor of light, eternal and sun of righteousness, come and enlighten those who dwell in darkness, in the shadow of death. What is dayspring? It's an old English word. It's an old English word for the beginning of the day, for the dawn of day, for the break of day. What is a dayspring? It is daybreak, the dawn, the rising, the springing up of the sun. This phrase shows up in a couple of particular passages that are about Jesus. The first is in Luke 1. The other before it is in Isaiah 9. If you've got a Bible, you can kind of keep your finger in both passages, Isaiah 9 and Luke 1, or you can just follow on the screen. But in Isaiah 9, the prophet says this, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in a pitch dark land. Light has dawned. There's the idea of dayspring. The dawn has come. And then in Luke's gospel, this is the story of Zechariah, the husband of Elizabeth, and they receive word from an angel that they're going to have children in their old age. And Zechariah, of course, loses his ability to speak for a while. And then when he can, he starts bursting into song. And this is a part of Zechariah's song. He says, because of our God's deep compassion, the dawn from heaven, a daybreak that comes from heaven itself will break upon us to give light to those who are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide us on the path of peace. Zechariah, no doubt, as a priest, was pulling on this famous, well-known passage in Isaiah and saying, I think it's finally happening. Jesus is the dayspring who brings about a new day. Jesus, the dayspring, brings a new day. What does that mean? This morning I want us to reflect on three, at three things that a new day means for us. Three, day, three, three ways that Jesus is the dayspring who brings about a new day. And each of these things are found in this passage in Luke 1 and in Isaiah 9. So let's look there together. The first is this. A new day means that we are forgiven. A new day means that we are forgiven. The verse right before the one we read in Luke 1, verse 77 he says, you will tell his people how to be saved through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's deep compassion, the dawn from heaven will break upon us. And he goes on to talk about the light to those who are sitting in darkness. That phrase, sitting in darkness, that's a phrase that would have meant something to the people of God in the scriptures, to the Jewish listener of these words. Darkness represented sin and God's judgment of it. Think for a moment about uh, 
one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament, one of the most repeated stories that Israelite parents would have told their children, the story of Exodus, the story of God rescuing them from Egypt. Now, Egypt was the picture to them of an empire, of a kingdom that had organized itself apart from God and against God. And Pharaoh at the top of that kingdom was the picture of the, the wicked ruler. And so the Exodus story is a story of God delivering his people from their own wickedness. And when you track the plagues, we know the 10th plague was the big one. But what was the one right before it, the ninth plague? Darkness. And the judgment of darkness on Egypt would have forever been etched in the Israelite mind. Darkness equals human sin and God's judgment. They are the people, they are the land that is covered in darkness. Except by Isaiah's day, it's now Israel who's covered in darkness. Something has happened. It's not just the big bad guys out there, all oh, big bad Egypt. By Isaiah's day, when exile is occurring, the people of God are left with only one conclusion. Wait a minute. It's we who have sinned and we who have been judged. You see, friends, it's very easy to say, I can't wait for Christ to come again and get all of those wicked people out there, and I can't wait for him to come and sort out all of this evil and all of that wickedness, and not also tremble and say, but oh God, what about the sin in my own heart? What about the wickedness in here? You see, if God, the God who comes to set his world right, doesn't just fix the problem out there, he comes to deal with the problem in here. We too are a people living in darkness. But of course, the good news of Jesus' arrival means that God deals with our sin by offering us forgiveness. Instead of the judgment of darkness, he brings the great light of a new day. Think about that. Instead of saying, darkness is what you deserve, just go ahead and sit there. You're going to be in this outer darkness. He says, no. Isaiah says, no, I, I, I see something's coming. They're going to see a great light. Zechariah says it. Look, it's the forgiveness of sins. A light has dawned to the people who were languishing in darkness. Forgiveness has come. Forgiveness in our world today, though, is not a very popular concept because it implies that there's guilt. And so if you say to someone, some people are very uh, reluctant to even say, I'm sorry, or I was wrong, or will you forgive me? Because they're like, I wasn't really wrong. I was just a product of my environment. I was only doing what I had been programmed to do. There's no guilt here. Don't need forgiveness. We don't want to think in terms of morality and sin, and therefore we have no use of forgiveness. But I'd like to suggest to you today that regardless of whether a person thinks they are religious or not, we all have our own systems of keeping score. Or to put it another way, we all have our scoreboards of enoughness. Scoreboards of enoughness. You know, maybe we don't use terms like righteousness or sin, but we all have ways of measuring if you're enough. So you say, well, uh, if you're doing well at work, if you got your bonus, you're like, oh, that's like an extra 10 points. I'm hashtag winning. And we use this language how could you be winning if there's no score? Well, there's definitely a score. Well, who's keeping score? I am. What's the scoreboard? It's the one that our culture invented. And so we have scoreboards for work. Maybe that's why Americans lead the world in the fewest number of paid days off, paid time off. Maybe it's also why Americans lead the world in the fewest amount of vacation days used. I mean, think about that. not only do we give the fewest amount of paid days off, we take, we use the fewest amount of paid time off. We don't need that. 
I've got to keep winning. Hustle and grind, baby. Maybe there's another kind of scoreboard for all you parents out there that's about if you're winning at parenting. And so you've adopted your own kind of denomination, the one that is the rigid schedule and keep your child sleeping through the night. You can do this, baby, if you just keep this schedule going. If that's your religious denomination, then your scoreboard is how well you're doing that. The other one is like, it's wild and free, man. Like, we're just Coloradans, organic, whatever. They'll feed when they want to. It's, okay. it's all good. But either way, not only are we keeping score, we know how to display the scoreboard. It's called Instagram. So we got the pictures, it's perfectly cute. If you're the super orderly one, then your Instagram is like when the, the kitchen is totally clean, the dishes are done, and you're like, got my baby on a schedule, got the kitchen cleaned up, check, 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 you know. You're like, winning! Or if you're the other way, you're like, you know, you know what winning looks like. Or there, there is, the problem with having scoreboards of enoughness is you then also need a system of guilt management. Because it doesn't take long into keeping score before you realize you don't have enough points. And so you have some ways of managing guilt. You're like, well, if I'm doing this, then I got to show that I'm useful in another way. And I got to show that this is how I contribute to society. And this is my way of assuaging my guilt. The new way of doing that is the hyper voyeuristic vulnerability on social media. So now it's like, oh, we are so far from perfect. I'm just going to go ahead and make every post about how vulnerable I am. And so the voyeurism of vulnerability becomes a way of managing your own guilt. We just went deep today, guys. You're like, dude, I am going to think twice before I post anymore, or I'm going to make sure Glenn doesn't follow me. There you go. Systems of guilt management, ways of dealing with our sense of not enoughness. It's interesting, though, that... The one place where we use moral language the most is when it comes to how we're eating. Our diet, you know. You went to the Christmas party. Oh, I was bad. What'd you do? What happened at the Christmas party? I had two cookies. Like, it's okay. I will atone for it at the gym tomorrow. So now we have wickedness and atonement in the form of the religion of diet. I don't know that we've stopped being religious. We've just invented new systems for this. And sadly, there are Christian versions of this where you import this into Jesus land. And so your system of guilt management is to make sure you sign up to serve in the nursery. Now, we do want you to serve in the nursery, but we don't want you to serve as a system of guilt management. We don't want you to do these things because you're like, oh, I've got to prove my enoughness. And I yelled at my kids this morning, so I will go teach another person's kids the Bible. I don't want you to do that. That's not how this was designed to work. You see what the Scripture says to us? The Scripture says to us, what you're struggling with is sin, and what you're longing for is forgiveness. There's no other way. You can't change the game, rewrite your own scoreboard so that you're always winning. Christianity says you're free to say, I too have been living in darkness. But praise God, the light has come. Thank God forgiveness is here. The second, oh, Isaiah says this in verse 2 and 3, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in a pitched out dark land. Light has dawned and you have made the nation great. You've increased his joy. Keep in mind, Isaiah is writing this while exile has occurred. And they're like, you're crazy, Isaiah. He's like, I know it's darkness and sin and shame. But one day forgiveness 
and joy will come back again. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as those who plunder rejoice. The second thing we see about a new day is that a new day means that we are free. A new day means that we are free. Back to Zechariah's song, back to Luke 1, verse 77, 78. Because of God, our God's deep compassion, the dawn from heaven will break upon us to give light to those who are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death. Where have we heard that phrase before? Oh, Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Darkness, if in, if in one sense darkness represents sin and shame, there's another sense in which darkness represents danger and evil itself, the oppression of the enemy. This is why Isaiah 9 in verse 4, so we'll look at verse 2 in Isaiah 9, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and then skip down to verse 4. This is why he says, As on the day of Midian, you've shattered the yoke that burdened them, the staff on their shoulders, and the rod of the oppressor. Why is Isaiah talking about oppression? Because darkness is not just about sin. It's also about slavery. It's about oppression to sin and death. Sometimes the Bible talks about sin in two ways. One is as the acts of sin, lowercase s. The other, especially in the book of Romans, is of sin with a capital S. Sin, the very captor that has us as its prisoner. And so Isaiah is looking forward to a day that the Messiah will come and bring about liberation, bring about freedom from oppression. In the 100-year period between A.D. 30 and A.D. 130, there are two figures that we know without a doubt were claimed as or, or seen to be Messiah figures. One was Jesus of Nazareth. The other was a man named Simeon ben Kosiba. And Simeon ben Kosiba around the A.D. 130s was a man who led the Jewish revolt against Rome. This is what, you know, either what he looked like or what someone thought he looked like. And um, Simon, Simeon ben Kosiba was so successful with this Jewish revolt against Rome that a rabbi, a well-known rabbi, renamed him Simon Bar Kochva, which means son of the star, playing off of a phrase in the book of Numbers that says a Messiah will come. He's the son of the star. Well, what is the meaning of that? It's the star that marks the morning. It's the star that marks a new beginning. In fact, Simon or Simeon, however you want to remember him as, they were so excited about his revolt that they minted coins because that's what you do. You know, there's no, like, press release. Instead, you make coins. And on his coin, it said, year one. They thought a new era had arrived. Year one. Year one. We've won. We've pushed back. We've got independence back. Year one. And it lasted till year three. And then Rome squashed the revolt. It's interesting that of those two Messiah figures, we now look back at one of them and say, actually, time did change. History did turn on this Messiah's life, and that's why in the year of our Lord, 2019, we're still marking time by his arrival. Jesus, the Messiah. But the point of telling you this story is to say to you that the hope of a Messiah was the hope of someone who would free us from an oppressor. Who is that? Who is that oppressor? Definitely sin, definitely death, definitely the devil at work in the world in all of the ways he twists systems and structures to bend toward injustice. If you ever find yourself working for something, you say, I just can't quite change it. And why does it feel like every time we make progress, it bends back to this 
twisted version of itself in my line of work or in the stuff that I'm dealing with. It's because there is an oppressor that has got the world in its grips, but the arrival of Jesus means the end of Satan's reign. It means one day it will all be swallowed up. But sometimes I wonder if actually the worst oppressor that any of us have in our lives is ourself. We kind of think that true freedom is autonomy to do whatever we want, do whatever we like, and actually it's everyone else who's holding me back. It's everyone else who's keeping me down. And if I could just be me and be free to be me, then I'll have true freedom. What if you're the worst God you've ever known? What if you're the worst boss you've ever had? What if the weight of self-determinism is too crushing for you to bear? Is that why we have so many young people in their 20s who have been told, you've got the pen of your own destiny in your hands. You can decide what your identity is, and you can decide what your morality is, and you can decide what your destiny is. And they said, yes, freedom. But all the while, it's like putting yokes that are crushing on their shoulders. And so we're bristling under it, breaking under it, saying, I don't know. Who should I be? What should I do? Is that right? Is this right? What's good? What's evil? What's my future? What's not? Ah, ah, ah. Boom, boom, boom. The crushing weights. And Jesus arrives at the Gospels and says, you're weary, aren't you? You're weary of being the author of your own story. You're weary of being the true north for your own morality. You're weary of being the light for your own destiny. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for it's easy and it's light. There's only one ruler whose reign means our freedom, and it's Jesus. The third thing about a new day is a new day means that we can flourish. A new day means that we can actually flourish. Back to Luke 1. Because of our God's deep compassion, the dawn from heaven will break upon us to give light to those who are sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide us in the path of peace. And when we use this English word peace, we typically think of peace as the absence of something bad. And so peace is the negation of something we don't want. So peace is the absence of conflict or the absence of war. As the Beatles sang, Merry Christmas, war is over. Peace means that there's no more fighting. Peace may be the absence of anxiety, the absence of worry. Certainly it means that. But in the Bible, peace means more than that. Peace is more than the negation of something bad. It's the addition of something good. It's more than the absence of conflict. It's the presence of life and flourishing. This Greek word for peace is the word irene, and it's tricky when you're jumping from two, one language to another. The New Testament's written in Greek. Old Testament's written in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And shalom in the Hebrew mind is much more than war is over. Shalom is the world has come alive. Shalom is when God looked out at creation and said, yeah, that's good. Shalom is when everything is in its rightful place and it's growing and flourishing and it's fruitful and well-ordered and well-rooted. Shalom is the world put back together again. Shalom is the wholeness of the universe. And when 
The people translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek before the time of Jesus. The Greek word they chose for the Hebrew word shalom was this Greek word irene. And so I think when you're, when you're reading the New Testament and you see this Greek word irene, you're meant to think shalom. You're meant to think, oh, not just like peace in an absence of conflict. You mean flourishing. And so Zechariah sings, he says, the light has dawned so that we can be guided onto the path of flourishing. There was another group of people that used the word peace very prominently, and that was the Romans. The Romans in Jesus' day had used Irene as their own slogan of peace. Caesar Augustus, the Caesar who turned Rome from a republic into an empire, made it one of his propaganda statements. I've brought about a great peace. In fact, historians would retrospectively look back at this era and call it the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. But Tacitus, the Roman historian in the 100s, would write this. He said, the Romans call it empire, but it is, in fact, murder, plunder, and profit. Tacitus wrote, they make a desolation, and they call it peace. His own historians are saying, that's fake news, Caesar. You make a desolation, and you call it peace. And the followers of Jesus said, we know the real prince of peace. We know the one who doesn't bring a desolation and call it peace. He brings peace, and what that means is flourishing. The very opposite of desolation. The Romans brought peace at great cost to everyone else. Jesus brought peace at great cost to himself. Jesus goes to the cross. Amen. That's worth rejoicing in. That's worth saying. That, well, if, if there's nothing else that sets it apart, that alone should make us stop and say, wow, I think we're using this word differently. Yes, we are. One means someone else dies. The other means the king himself says, I'll die so that peace, you can be reconciled to God. That's why Isaiah said a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and authority, and authority will be placed on his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of peace. So what do we do with this? How do we live in the light of a new day? How then shall we live? If this is true, if Jesus is the day spring that brings about a new day, a new day of forgiveness, a new day of freedom, a new day of flourishing, okay, okay so, so how do we live? Paul carries forward this imagery of darkness and light quite a bit in his letters, and particularly in Ephesians chapter 5. The first thing we see that Paul is saying, we heard it in our New Testament reading this morning, he says darkness has its own kind of lifestyle that goes with it, but light has its own life that goes with it. The first thing we are to do is to live like it's morning while it's midnight in the world. Live like it's morning while it's midnight in the world. Ephesians 5 verse 8, you were once darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord, so live your life as children of light. Light produces fruit that consists of every goodness, justice, and truth. If you're sitting here and you're wondering, what does it mean to live like it's morning while it's midnight in the world? Here we go. Goodness, justice, truth. It's always <coughs> a bit head-scratching to me when some Christians kind of say, well, you, you know, justice, we don't need to worry about that. We just need to focus on the gospel. And that would have been news to St. Paul. Because to St. Paul, the gospel was not, you get your passport stamped for heaven. The gospel was, Jesus is king and a new day has come. 
And since there's a new day, let's live in a way that can bring injustice to justice and bring goodness where there was wickedness and bring truth where there was deception. That's what it means to live like it's morning while it's midnight in the world. I, um, you know, growing up in Malaysia, we crossed over the Pacific several times, and I think by my count, it's been a few years since I've made a trip back over to Asia, but I think by my count, I've made the trip over the Pacific 25 times. It's an odd number because I ended up on the other side of the Pacific than where I started, just in case you're wondering. It's not round trips there, yeah. <laughs> 12 round trips, one one way. There you go. And uh, if you've done international travel, where you're crossing multiple time zones, I mean, even going to the UK or going to Europe, seven hours, eight hours, that's enough. <clears throat> you're talking about Asia, you're talking about 14, 15 hours. So you develop some strategies over time about how to cope with jet lag. And one of the best ways to do this, and I think there's like Harvard research behind this, is to actually, the best way to trick your biological clock is to start your eating habits to the time zone you're going to. So that when you eat breakfast in the new time zone, it truly is morning and your body goes But that's hard to do because you want to eat when you want to eat. And you want to sleep when you want to sleep. But I remember once I was trying to really master this technique of living in the time zone that you're going to. I'd be on the plane, I'd be like, okay, everybody else is eating, I'm not going to eat, I'm going to skip this meal, I'm going to wait for the breakfast meal, and, and everyone's doing their thing, and, they're having, and I'm like, man, amateurs, bunch of rookies, they don't know, they're going to be so messed up for the next few days, I'm going to get this right, but it's really hard, it's really hard to adjust your clock, to live against this, to pretend, to try to trick your mind about time zones, and yet that's what the Christian life is a, bit li- is a little bit like. To say, I want to live into the time zone that we're going to. We're going into the new day of God's kingdom. The world still thinks it's darkness in midnight. And so they're living in a particular way that's consistent with darkness. But I want to live like the light has already come. So people scratch their heads and say, I don't understand Christian sexual ethics. And I don't understand Christian's virtues. It's not because we're fussy. It's because we've seen the future. It's not because we're, we're like, oh, we're just kind of puritanical or we're just kind of like old-fashioned. It has nothing to do with that, maybe for some people. But what Paul says is it needs to be about the future. If you know where you're going, then live in the time zone that you're going to. If it's morning there, then you eat your bacon and eggs, even though everybody else is snoozing right now. Go ahead and live like it's morning while it's midnight in the world. The second thing Paul says to the Ephesians is to wake the world. Wake the world around us to the light of the new day. See, it's important that we see both of these movements because otherwise we could say, okay, great, got it. I'll just find my other Christians. We'll live in our little holy huddle. We'll keep pretending like it's morning. The world is so, so dumb and the world is so bad and we'll just have our little Christian commune and we have our Christian testaments and our Christian holy grounds coffee and all of this stuff and we'll do our little Christian, you know, cubbyhole life while the world is in darkness. No, Paul says, look, you got to get out and wake the world up. Tell them it's good news. Tell them. And so in Ephesians 5, a few verses later, he says, Therefore it says, wake up, sleeper. Get up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul doesn't want Christians to be content to say, oh, great, we're in on this. We know the light has come. We know morning has arrived. No, go tell everyone a new day is here. Go tell everyone that forgiveness of sins is possible. Go tell everyone that freedom is possible. Go tell them that the flourishing life, your life the way God made you to be, is possible. A newness has arrived. Wake the world. 
The theologian N.T. Wright says, those who discern the dawn must awaken the world. Those who discern it, who can see it, there's little signs of it here and there. It's happened. Let's wake the world. But how is this possible? Not because we're good people. Not because we're, you know, we come from good stock and we've never made any mistakes and we can just do this right. That's not why. This is only possible because Jesus is the day spring. Jesus himself is the new day. Jesus himself is the dawn. John's gospel doesn't have a nativity story. That's left for Matthew and Luke. But what John's gospel does have is a Genesis image. John 1 begins in the same way that Genesis 1 begins, in the beginning. But then he says, was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And all things were made through him. And then he even talks about light and darkness in John 1. And then at the very end of John's gospel, after the resurrection, it says, Jesus, on the first day of the week, purposeful language, Jesus, on the first day of the week, gathers his disciples and he says, peace be with you. Your sins are forgiven. And then he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. You're like, man, where have I heard that before? This is what God did with Adam. When God took the human out of the dust of the ground and formed him and breathed the breath of God into his nostrils. John's trying to say to us, Jesus is the new Genesis. Jesus brings about a new creation. The old creation has been tainted and been enslaved by sin. But because Jesus has come, because Jesus has died, because Jesus is risen, a new creation has arrived now. Receive the Holy Spirit. Some of you are sitting here today and you're like, that sounds awful nice. And it doesn't sound like any version of Christianity, maybe that you heard. What you heard was, come on, do better or else hell. The preaching of the first followers of Jesus, they didn't avoid the subject of judgment, but the preaching of the first followers of Jesus was much more focused on, behold, the light has come. You don't have to live in outer darkness. You don't have to be stuck here. Do you want a new day? Do you want a new Genesis? Do you want to be given a new creation start? Do you want the very breath of God to fill up your lungs again? My friends, it's here. It's here because of Jesus. And for all of us in the room, you're like, well, I I mean, I've had that. I, I follow Jesus. I've been born again. I experienced that. It's great. Paul will say a few verses later in Ephesians 5, don't be drunk with wine. That's what, the, that's what the life of the darkness looks like, debauchery, drunk, all this stuff. But then he says, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. The breath of God that is in you, keep inhaling. Keep breathing it in. Keep taking this in. Sometimes I think we kind of Get a, think about the Holy Spirit in a zero-sum game. Have him, don't have him. We have him. You, you're a Christian. You have the Holy Spirit. But keep breathing. Keep breathing. Keep letting your life be renewed. This is why Paul says, outwardly, our outer being is perishing, but our inward being is being renewed every six months or so when we come to church. Every Sunday when the worship team gets up there, oh, I really feel it. No, no, no. Paul says, but our inward being is being renewed daily. You can experience the power and reality of new creation every day. 
Every day we wake up and say, come Holy Spirit, I need you. I need you. I don't know how to live like it's morning while the world is in darkness. I don't know how to live with goodness and justice and truth. It all seems so hard. But Jesus, thank you for forgiveness. Jesus, thank you for freedom. Jesus, thank you that you can bring about flourishing and fruitfulness. So Holy Spirit, come on. Breathe in me. Renew your work in me. Jesus, who was there at the beginning, has brought about a new beginning. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you bow your heads this morning? Just take a moment and allow the Holy Spirit to work in you. Maybe for some of you it's helpful to say, come Holy Spirit, come. Come renew the breath in my spirit. Come renew my inner being, inner being today. Come wake me up to the lights. Come Holy Spirit.